Hello and welcome to this episode of Scotland Matters, the Scottish Land and Estates podcast. My name is Carmen McPherson, Membership Communications Manager at SLE. In this, our final episode for Season 1, you'll hear from Chief Executive Sarah-Jane Lang, our newly appointed Press and Public Affairs Manager Cameron Gillies, and Senior Policy Advisor on Agriculture and Climate Change Eleanor Kay, as they discuss the Scottish Government's Cabinet reshuffle and its implications. But before that, we'll hear Cameron chat with Stephen Young, our Director of Policy, as they provide a summary of the work SLE is currently undertaking, and share a glimpse of what's coming next. We've said many times recently that we live in a very busy time, and particularly in the legislative world. The aim of this podcast is to give you a very brief update on some of the current and forthcoming work that we have going on at SLE, particularly in the world of public affairs and legislation. We'll update fully in future on uh, these issues and on member information sheets, so keep your eyes and ears open for that. So we're going to take you through some of the key elements that we're working on right now. But firstly, Cameron, you're new to SLE. Do you want to uh, give a bit of an introduction to yourself and your background? Yeah, sure. So uh, a month and a half or so into my new role, um, I'm just getting to grips with things. And uh, as Stephen said, it's an incredibly busy time in politics just now. Uh, It's something that I was immersed in in my previous role working in the Scottish Parliament. So thankfully, I'm familiar with that busy legislative landscape. Uh, One of the the key things we're working on just now is obviously the uh, Wildlife Management and Muirburn Bill. Uh, Today, uh, being the the 7th of February, is uh, the first day of stage two of the bill, uh, and our team's been working really hard on on supporting some amendments that have been brought forward today. Uh, Some some real sort of key things we've wanted to delve into uh, has been around legal safeguards, proportionality, the certainty that we're providing the rural sector with this legislation. Uh, And we've been uh, really lucky to have had the support of MSPs in this, uh, not not just from the opposition, but from the government as well. Uh, today we saw Gillian Martin bringing forward a few amendments which, which deal with the legal safeguards. Uh, we've seen opposition members make their points um, on, on the proportionality of the bill, uh, around the certainty of the bill uh, and the workability of the bill. So, you know, um, things are moving roughly in the right direction, even if we aren't, uh, even if we aren't seeing all of the, uh, the amendments we're pushing for uh, passing. Uh, we've only got about halfway through, so we've got lots more to come. And yeah, we'll, we'll by no means be taking our foot off the gas as far as that's concerned. Um, yeah, so a, a really busy time for wildlife management and a really busy time on housing as well, Stephen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, housing's always a hot topic for, for members right across SLE. And one of the things that we've been working on recently is that we submitted a consultation response and it's really looking at how we exit from the current Cost of Living Act measures, which brought in rent controls of, if you remember, 3% or 6% if you had proof of prescribed costs. Now, these measures were extended until the 31st of March 2024. And, and this is really looking at a new system which will come in behind that, which will still be rent controls, but potentially with more leeway. But there's also potentially to have a much more complex complex and technical uh, landscape around that as well. So the proposals are to allow for larger increases in rent as long as they're not above a market rent. And there's some issues around that in terms of how do you define a market rent in rural areas, which can be really challenging because there's low numbers of properties being let and how do you actually see what where the market is. 
there's also potential for tenants to apply for adjudication if they're not happy with the, the rent cre- increase that's been put forward. And they know that if they do that, then the award can't be any more than the rate that the landlord, landlord has suggested. So I would expect to see more tenants contesting rent increases in the future because there literally is nothing to lose for that. Um, so it is a complex situation. We will issue much more detailed guidance in due course. The key message, though, is that the Cost of Living Act, which is the 3% increase, is in force until the end of March. And you can't notify an intention to increase rent by more than that until after the 1st of April. So please don't jump the gun on that as well. There's also the process of notification periods too. So please don't go too far. Make sure you understand the rules that are in place and the rules that are coming in. Anna Gardner and the policy team is doing a huge amount of work on this. And you should see plenty more information coming from us in the coming weeks on that and hopefully guiding you through that as well. But it's obviously um, the built environment's a really important conversation and, and kind of tourism and property lets get kind of bundled in together. So Cameron, I know you've been looking at local visitor levy and having a lot of meetings around that as well at the moment. Yeah, so this is another key piece of legislation that's uh, just reached its second stage in Holyrood. Now, there's a number of concerns that we that we have around this bill. Uh, first and foremost, um, uh, it's another sort of proportionality thing. Uh, the message that this bill is sending to our tourism industry and our accommodation providers is that you need to do more and you can expect less from us. So, um, you know, it, it's a really worrying situation for, for accommodation providers. Um, you know, that there's a lot of details that are yet to be confirmed whether or not a visitor levy would look like a percentage taxation or a fixed sum. We would strongly advocate that, that it should be a fixed sum uh, on the basis that it's much simpler to implement uh, and it, it leaves less room for loopholes. Um, you know, other concerns is certainly for smaller providers uh, that there's a potential for, for this to push people over the £85,000 VAT sum. And, and that, that would be a taxation on top of the taxation that this is actually already bringing forward. But the key thing about this bill, again, is just about the message it's really sending to our tourism industry. You know, we, we should we should be supporting businesses and not trying to make their, their lives harder. So, you know, we're re- really keen to engage with the government on this and make sure that we, we don't see this as something that, that's turning people off from the business and not reducing the sort of critical mass that we have in the tourism industry. It's not so much an issue for the big providers um, who can absorb these costs and absorb the, the capacity issues that it leads to. But it's more the uh, the sort of ninety percent of accommodation providers who work on a smaller scale. Um, we also have issues around uh, provision of accommodation to key workers in in rural areas. Um, you know what? Why why are we looking at a bill that could potentially see them pay more for that? Uh, you know that this this bill is really looking at how how we can uh, help tourism support local authorities. Uh, so there's lots of different uh, details to iron out in this. Um, and, you know, th- this is in the midst of a, a plethora of, of other pieces of legislation that's coming down the line for rural Scotland that Stephen might talk a little bit more about. But on the whole, um, you know, we're, we're really keen to talk about the kind of messages these bills are sending. Yeah, I think that uh, the messaging is much anything and the symbolism 
um, particularly around tourism, we seem to be sending out this message that tourism in Scotland is somehow damaging rather than an asset to the country, and that really that really bothers me that we're doing that, and that it, that becomes a global message as well. And we really need to be driving up visitor numbers and high value visitors as well, rather than kind of somehow trying to put them off and saying this is something that we don't want. It's uh, it really flies in the face of a lot of our uh, a lot of the work that we're doing. I don't think we're allowed to do a, a SLE policy update in any way without mentioning land reform. So we'll move on to that now as well. I suppose the big news around land reform is that the bill has been delayed. It was due to be published before the end of 2023. And that has been delayed now. We're not sure when the bill is going to arrive. We're working on the assumption of, of sometime in March. Now that could be later. I don't think it will be earlier, but we have to work on the assumption to make sure we are ready for that. Um, until it's published, we won't know for sure exactly what is in the bill, obviously. So we have to work on the assumption that nothing's really changed from the measures that were consulted on um, 18 months or so ago. So a definition of a large-scale landholding being 3,000 hectares, um, the need for estate management plans, a public interest test on, on sale and transfer of land, and a statutory footing for land rights and responsibilities. So we'll continue the work that we've been doing on that, trying to tell the positive story of land management, particularly land management is scale and what that delivers for Scotland really try and hit home the, the benefits that are there and we'll continue that work uh, until we see the bill and then we'll, we'll deal with issues from there. The other newsworthy item is probably at the Scottish Land Commission where Mike Russell has taken over as chair from Andrew Thin. That just took place a week or so ago. We obviously have a, a strong working relationship with the Land Commission. We do a lot of work with them um, and on various areas. We'll be looking to, to build on that and we will be looking to meet Mike Russell with uh, some of the senior team here at SLE in the near future to try and uh, make sure we have that strong relationship going forward. In other issues, obviously the Agriculture Bill, um, which I know Cameron's keen on and um, some of the issues in there. It's just past stage one. We're expecting further announcements at the end of this week. Um, but it is a framework bill. We're not expecting a huge amount of details. Cameron, do you anything you want to add to that? I know there's a, we've got quite a lot to say about the budgetary yeah. requirements around that. Uh, absolutely. And, and the interest in the agriculture bill is very much on what's going to come down the line once the bill is passed through Parliament and, and what we call the secondary legislation. Where is the funding going to be in this four-tier system that, that we're looking at? Uh, we know that the National Farmers Union are certainly advocating for the bulk of that funding to be in direct payments. Uh, and, and there's been little sort of talk around around where uh, where we're going to see that. Other organisations are looking for, for more of the funding to be given on uh, conditional circumstances uh, around about environmental projects. Uh, so there, there's certainly a debate being uh, going on in the background between stakeholder organisations um, whilst the government remains fairly tight-lipped on this. Uh, so really, the, the, the detail is going to come later on down the line rather than on the face of this bill. And yeah, it's all set in the context of a, a Holyrood budget that's uh, just about to go to stage one in Parliament. We've got a big debate on that tomorrow. Uh, we've seen a fairly hefty cut to the uh, the top line rural affairs bill and the, the net zero uh, budget. So uh, really challenging times for rural Scotland in that respect, the amount of money that is being given to projects and, and businesses in, in the rural sector is reducing from government. Uh, you know, alarm bells will be ringing, particularly ar around organisations involved in woodland creation. Uh, we have a series of papers uh, coming out on, on depopulation in Scotland and the Herald at the moment. Uh, that seems to be a, a real focus of the media and uh, certainly 
cutting the rural affairs budget is not going to do anything to alleviate that. Uh, and you know we're yet to see the, the true implications of of, uh, of these budget cuts. But um, you know at at the moment the the signs and sounds from government is, is that it's not really a priority. Yeah, I think that's the the big concern. It's back to the signalling. You know, for so long we've been signalling, particularly in, in forestry, that we want to ramp up planting. We want to have more home-produced plants and, and trees to, to to work with. And then all of a sudden the budget gets slashed and all this just drops down the agenda again. So people are ramping up to, to deliver these benefits and then being told to stop. And we have to think about this in a whole supply chain situation. And land management is a very long-term business and the supply chains that work with land management are extremely long as well. And they work well. But we have to have that consistency of messaging, consistency of support, so that we can make long-term decisions and deliver long-term benefits. Without that, it really is a struggle for everyone. Yeah. On specific asks, we, we've written a letter to the Financial Secretary, to the Treasury, along with the CLA, along with the Tenant Farmers Association and the Agriculture Arbiters and Bowyers and, and some other bodies as well. And it was really about the taxation of land used, used in environmental schemes. This is hugely important. If government want to see land managed in this way, and we have to have a, a tax uh, situation which helps that. So it's really about making sure that the tax regime reflects modern practices and remains fit for purpose rather than a hurdle because there is a lot of nervousness around some of this um, in the future and that is both farmed in hand land and in tenanted land. How that will be treated is extremely important. We need to understand that before these long-term decisions can be made. I'd completely agree with that, but um, and the sounds that are coming from Holyrood is that they're looking for more clarity over over how that's going to affect things in terms of the agriculture bill, which we've already spoken about. Uh, so, you know, may, maybe the, there is a view that the Treasury could provide some greater clarity to Scotland over that. Um, but yeah, on the whole, very interesting times in Westminster, very interesting times in Holyrood, and a lot to look forward to. Yeah, there is. It's going. To, it's not going to be a dull year. We keep saying that. And I keep. Uh, in some ways, you kind of wish for a dull year because we've had so many what would be exciting years over the past. But this one's certainly not going to be dull. We've got a huge amount to work to get through, and there's going to be a lot of change as well. But we're we're here and ready to do that. Um, th- thanks for that, Cameron. It's been really interesting just talking through some of the issues there. This has been an extremely quick run through of what we're up to. There's a lot of work going on as well. We'll be updating in more detail on all of these topics in the weeks and months to come. And as ever, if you have any specific queries, please do get in touch with the policy team. We're happy to help. And we'll, as I say, there'll be more information coming out in terms of podcasts, webinars, and member information sheets and the website. So please do keep your, your eyes and ears open. But if you need anything specific, then also please do get in touch. <laughs> Thanks to Cameron and Stephen for taking the time to record this conversation. Now let's hear from Cameron again, this time joined by SLE's Chief Executive Sarah-Jane Lang and Eleanor Kay, our Senior Policy Advisor on Agriculture and Climate Change. As is often the case with Scottish politics, uh, things happen very quickly and not long after um, Cameron, you and Stephen had recorded your your update, your up-to-the-minute update, we had a few changes um, in in politics in Scotland. So we had a few changes in cabinet. Um, Mr. Youssef was um, he took the opportunity, didn't he, after Michael Matheson's resignation to kind of have a look at the cabinet in the round. And there's a few changes, um, especially for the rural sector. Do you want to kind of talk us through those? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't think it will have been a huge surprise to the first minister uh, that he's had the opportunity to kind of. Uh, shake up his ministerial team and reshape uh, some, of, some of that ministerial team's priorities. So 
you know, in in the backdrop of um, some announcements that were made last week uh, in rural affairs, that Eleanor will talk about a little bit more. Uh, Hamza used that opportunity to boost his his rural team and appoint uh, Jim Fairley uh, to the newly created post of Minister for Agriculture and Connectivity. Uh, so he's going to work under the Rural Affairs Secretary Mary Goujon uh, and the Transport Secretary Fiona Hislop. Um, with Neil Gray departing his role as well as uh, the Economy Secretary to replace Matheson in health, uh, the Net Zero Secretary Mary McCallan has had her portfolio expanded to include uh, the wellbeing economy, uh, taking the wellbeing out of it, which has delivered a little bit more clarity over what that actually means. But yeah, the, these these changes have been made in, in the backdrop of a a long list of legislation going through Parliament that's going to have some pretty major effects on on the rural sector. And it's clear that Hamza Yousaf wants to send a message that he's taking these the, the concerns of the rural sector seriously with the appointment of a, a new junior minister uh, in that department. Yeah, and before we get into the rural aspects, maybe just kind of reflect on those, those top cabinet secretary uh, changes. And Neil Gray, I have to say, has been fantastic to work with from a, a business point of view. And um, although you know the whole of Scotland will be grateful that he's you know he's taking on the health brief, brief I'm sure that quite a few of us in the business sector were sorry to see him go. He's he's definitely made sure he's engaged proactively. He's he's taken on board points, um, and that's it's going to be quite a hard act for uh, Mary McAllen to follow, given how wide her her portfolio as net zero and economy minister actually is. Yeah, absolutely. So Neil Gray's been central to Hamza Yousaf's efforts to try and repair relations with business. That new deal for business. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, He he was really central to that. And I think by by all accounts, he was doing quite a good job and he'll be he'll be a big loss uh, to that portfolio. But clearly, Hamza recognised the the good work that he was doing there and, and taking on the health portfolio and in uh, in St Andrew's House is is probably seen as a promotion, as and that's testament to his works. He he values Mary McAllen as well, who he feels will will be able to step up and and keep delivering on that and keep the momentum going on on uh, the SNP's efforts to repair relations with business. Um, but I I also think that uh, you know that this this reshuffle does show that Hamza has identified may, maybe a, a, a lack of capacity on the rural affairs portfolio. Uh, so you know we're we've always been working with Jim Fairley as a member of the uh, RAI committee, uh, taking through a lot of rural legislation, including the agriculture bill and the wildlife management bill. So Jim Fairley's appointment does leave a gap on that committee. We're not 100% sure who's going to take that on, but we know that Jim understands rural issues, uh, particularly in agriculture. As a farmer, he's been uh, working on a lot of the legislation that he's now going to be on the other side of as a minister. Uh, and you know, we hope to continue having the good relationship uh, that we've had with him as a as a backbencher whilst he takes up his post in government. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, Jim's a fantastic parliamentarian. You know, he takes time to to listen to arguments, to to share his thoughts, to um, you know, to to feed back to practitioners where they can improve what they're doing. But also, he comes with that you know that wealth of knowledge and and expertise in terms of land management, uh, rural business, rural community really understands um, the, the challenges and opportunities of, of rural Scotland. And he's been fantastic on the Rural Affairs Committee. So, he, you know, he'll, he'll be a miss in, in one sense as that critical um, committee member asking challenging questions of, of cabinet ministers at, at times. Um, but he, yeah, he takes on this role. And, and Cameron, it's, we don't know for certain yet, but it sounds as though Jim's going to take on 
a bill that he's just been a, a committee member sort of looking at, part of the scrutiny, the, the one that's looking at Gricemuir management. Yeah, absolutely. So so just two days on from sitting on that committee, bringing forward his own amendments to a bill, he was appointed to a post that could very well see him being the lead minister on the Wildlife Management Bill, the fourth minister uh, to have taken on that bill. Uh, you know, that, that has been a slight cause for concern for the rural sector and particularly uh, grouse shooting estates who would be following this bill really closely. Um, but thankfully, you know, we, we hope to be able to hit, hit the ground running in terms of our relationship with that lead minister. We've always we've always had a good working relationship with any minister working on this bill. And, uh, you know, we, we hope that we'll be able to, to keep that up. But, yeah, it, it, is an, it is an interesting prospect to have a member uh, of, a com- of a committee take on a bill that they already have amendments for. Uh, that, that's uh, fairly unprecedented as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but it also means that he's straight up to speed. He he knows the ins and outs of this bill. He understands the the permutations of it, um, and he'll definitely be able to hit the ground running. Yeah, I have to say, you know, I, I think that it's far better to have someone who um, has a real, real, really strong knowledge of of not just this bill, but some of the other wildlife management issues which are going to um, be coming through, rather than parachuting somebody into this brief at this stage of yeah. a bill. I think that would have been really challenging for for everybody involved so you know look like you look forward to to working with uh, with jim in his in his new role before we get on to kind of talk about um some of the other things um rural wise because as you sort of say the first minister seems to have a little bit of a rural focus in the last uh, the last sort of 10 days planting trees making announcements that we'll we'll talk to eleanor about um there have been a, a couple of other changes at, at Holyrood that are worth mentioning and we're we're seeing the departure of of Donald Cameron from um, the Scottish Conservatives, and you know a, a much respected across the across the the chamber um, voice, uh, very very articulate, very um, obviously very again very knowledgeable about the the issues facing not just his constituents but the whole of Scotland. And Donald's going to be a big miss, but but it'll be a gain to the Scotland office. But do you want to share some of your yeah, thoughts on that as well? Absolutely. You know, as you said, he's he's really highly regarded, not just in his own party in the Scottish Conservatives, but but across uh, across uh, all parties. You know, he's one of the one of the most affable people I, I feel in in the Scottish Parliament. Um, you know, he's really well liked across Holyrood. He's going to be taking up a, a new position in the UK government in the, in the Scotland office, as you said. Um, he'll be taking a house of Lord, a seat in the House of Lords as well in order to fulfil that role. Uh, and uh, next, and does he take over from Lord Offord? Is that the the kind of plan at the Scotland office? Because I think Lord Offord's moving on to. Yeah, to DTI so, or somewhere, isn't so, it? So uh, Lord Offord al- already holds a ministerial post uh, as as exports minister um, in the, uh, as you said, in, in DTI uh, under Kemi Badenoch. So uh, Lord Cameron's uh, appointment uh, to the Scotland office will allow him to focus on that, and it, it's opened up space for him to take on some responsibilities in the Scotland office. Um, and rather excitingly, uh, that leaves a vacancy on the Highland list for the Scottish Conservatives. Uh, which we understand is going to be filled by uh, former colleague Tim Eagle, uh, who you know you, you know well from working with him. Uh, absolutely. So Tim was the, the Scottish Land and Estates um, North East Regional Manager for a short time before he went to work for one of our professional members. Um, so still very much involved in the, the sector and really a, a great guy. Um, again, uh, very much focused on rural business, rural communities like Donald. Um, very likable, great manner. You know, he he likes to bring people together and work towards that kind of shared vision. And Eleanor, you know, 
jump in, you know, your thoughts on any of these changes before we start talking about, about the kind of more policy geek world. What, what's your thoughts on some of the, the changes that have happened in the cabinet at the end of last week? It's, it's great to, it's great to get a minister for, for farming. It's something that, you know, SLE were, were calling for at the sort of middle of last year. It was one thing that we were really missing considering the scale of policy that needs to be delivered. It, you know, what we really needed was a, a department that was fully, fully resourced and it feels that we're, we're perhaps there. Jim is a great addition, but will be really missed on that committee. And we can only hope that his his replacement is as equally robust in their questioning of of government and, and other stakeholders. So it's yeah, great to have great to have him in government and, and I'm sure he'll he'll continue to be very keen to work with stakeholders in a very sort of collegiate manner, which is is really important when we're dealing with quite complex and occasionally conflicting <laughs> pieces of work. It's it's really good to hopefully have someone who will keep talking to the sector. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the other things, you know, people talk about the fact that we're not seeing Kate Forbes back in government and we'll maybe come back to that in a future podcast programme. But, you know, the, the other thing that the First Minister made quite clear is that the Butte House Agreement is here to stay. I mean, that's something that he mentioned um, a, a couple of times last week, but certainly no changes at all to the, the remit of the, the Scottish Green Ministers, uh, Miss Slater and, and Mr Harvey. So that does seem to be a very protected um, part of the, the Cabinet. Yes, it, it really does. And it was something that was mentioned again and again on, on Friday when he when the First Minister made his rural um, and ag budget announcements. The, the questioning he got on the on the Butte House Agreement was very firm and he, he yeah, made it very clear he has no intention of, of looking at it, just despite the many issues that rural has with with the Butte House Agreement. Yeah and you know I, I talked at the kind of the earlier on that you've alluded to there that there's a number of announcements. Um, Mr Yusuf was out planting trees I think he'd, he was up in the Cairngorms I think they may also have been in the Lomans. He was you know um, facing a, a room full of farmers um, I think there are plans to have other discussions with other rural um, rural um, bodies. But Ella, do you want to kind of talk us through the main parts of what you announced in, um, last week, and and you know what does this mean, and how does it align with what we've been calling for? Yeah. So on Friday we got the sort of long-awaited detail, or or a little bit more detail at least, on the allocation of future funding. So something that we were expecting in this sort of quarter anyway, in accordance with the agricultural reform route map linked to that agricultural reform program um, all of this is about the future future policy and what we didn't really know was was how budget was going to be split between the the new tiered system so we finally got confirmation that the the budget's going to be split in sort of 70 percent for for direct payments so this is tier one and tier two so these are still conditional but they will be open to everyone and then the remaining 30% will be for tiers three and tier four. So tier three being that um, competitive system where certain schemes will be put together and farmers can, can put in for certain projects and it will be a competitive process. And tier four is this support package of knowledge exchange and skills and training and, and professional development work amongst other things. So really useful to know how this budget's going to be split. Of course, it's 70% of a, an unknown pot of money. We expect from Westminster, at least, that that money will be at least what is currently available. 
but we have a general election. We don't quite know what's going to be going on with this, but it was interesting to see a large commitment of money to what is essentially direct payment, not not what we currently have in forms of direct payment. There will be quite a lot of expectation on delivering for sustainable and regenerative agriculture and, and elements of climate change mitigation and adaptation in that. So it's it's not what we used to have. And that's that's quite an important thing to know. It's still a big change in practice. We also heard about the sort of future of this less favoured area support scheme. So LFAS has been much talked about part of supports for, for quite a long time. What we now know is that will be reworked. And as with the other funding allocation, this will be available from 2027. This is additional to that 70% allocation in tier one and two. But again, quite what government wants to do with less favoured areas and and the objectives of what that money is, is there to deliver is still very much in discussion. It's big piece of work it's a very difficult conversation to have as to what what support is used for in in the uplands and and difficult areas to to produce food are still very valuable areas for things like natural capital and and natural flood management and trees and peat restoration that they they have a potential but it just might not be purely for food production. Eleanor, would it be fair to say that there's maybe a little bit of difference between what's in the detail and some of those kind of high-level messages that the First Minister kind of gave on Friday? Some of the messaging seemed to be very reassuring. There was, you know, that it was continuation, you know, the, you know, food at the centre, which is great. But when you look at the detail, as you say, it is still quite substantive changes, um, both in both in terms of, you know, what will be funded, but what will have to happen um, to enable um, land managers, farmers to access that funding. Absolutely, I I think the messaging was perhaps not not done in the in the best way. Communication between government and the agricultural sector hasn't been great for the last you know, two or three years, and this did feel like another sort of missed opportunity, perhaps, to to make it very clear to the sector that there is a transition needed, and it is quite a big transition with with a lot of work required. And that the money and the support will be there to deliver it. And a lot of the conversation we heard in a lot of the announcements and the language was very much about, no, no, you'll still be farming almost in the same way. And and we know that's not possible in terms of a climate adaptation perspective. We we can't keep farming in the way we're we're currently farming as you know on average. We we have to make changes. And I don't think that's really going to help move sort of mindsets towards the the type of land management that we will we will need to see if we're going to keep producing food because this is still about producing food and it's and it's good to see food production and nature restoration and biodiversity being sort of put given equal footing is is exactly what we we want to see and it's something that we've been you know very vocal on but that will require some slightly difficult conversations as to where where is the food produced and and where are we perhaps giving more more of that space for nature but it's i just i don't think we're getting that yet from from government i think we will you know what we've had in the last few days has been confirmations how money is going to be allocated and that's that's helpful it definitely gives you some assurance that 
the, the bulk of money to enable farming to continue is, is still going to be there. But the next stuff we need is, you know, what is in tier two? Because we, we know it's still changing in practices. If, you, if you're going to be able to get hold of any of that tier two money, stuff is going to have to happen. I don't quite know if there's still going to be true reward for those who've already been doing those farming practices. We've got a verbal commitment, but we've not really got a true commitment. And I expect we may have to wait to the Highland Show for a number of these announcements, as is always the way. But what we need is that conversation to be happening with farmers on the ground as to you know, what, what in reality are they going to be expected to have to do? How soon are they going to need to do it? And is the work that you have to do in tier one to get hold of that money, which in a whole farm plan, it looks like a sizable piece of work and not cheap if you do it properly. How are we going to make sure that that tier one requirement is usable throughout the rest of your farming practice? Yeah, it's meaningful, isn't it? Just a tick box exercise that, that then sits in a shelf. And, you know, how, so, you know, I suppose, question to both of you, how has the, you know, how have the announcements been, I suppose, met by environmental NGOs, by opposition parties? What are people saying about this announcement? So what I've been sort of hearing is sort of an acceptance that it, it wasn't quite what they were fearing. There was a, a, a general fear of sort of an 80-20 split, which would have been quite a difficult one for environmental NGOs to stomach. I think a lot of a lot of the responses you get is, well, the devil's in the detail. So how ambitious is the enhanced conditionality of tier two going to be in terms of delivering sustainable and regenerative agricultural practices? How is it going to link in with, with other things that need to be done for the just transition work and the biodiversity work? You know, is is the only money available for things like biodiversity going to be caught up in tier three or is there going to be other money available? I think what we're hearing from organisations perhaps over the border is how different this is to what's going on in England and how different this is to what's going on in Wales. And we'll have to watch for you know, potential challenges on that. If this is too much divergence, perhaps, is, is a very interesting topic of conversation that will will I expect continue for for many years but I think overall everyone's just glad to get something um and as a sector we'd probably all have liked to have seen impact assessments and modeling as to quite why this decision was made yeah I, I think that the allocation of funding within the four-tier system was the big question when this bill was first published or, or when the uh, the agricultural route map was first published way back in, in February. Uh, so now to have an answer to that question uh, probably is is seen as a really positive thing in the industry. It also answers the questions uh, that were coming from opposition parties. Uh, and politically, um, being able to get on the front foot will be really useful to Hamza Youssef in a backdrop of um, a fairly febrile response to uh, things happening in Europe as far as ag policy is concerned. He'll see what's happening in, in France, in Germany, Belgium, Spain, Portugal, across the continent, uh, see farmers lining the streets and uh, protesting with their tractors, in some cases things turn, turning violent, and think, I need to do what I can to avoid that because uh, at the end of the day, Scottish farmers, English farmers, Welsh farmers... Uh, they're all really worried about this and they're all coming from the same point of view as farmers in Europe 
uh, as to how our move to to net zero, how our transition to that is going to work and, and what that means for them and their future. Uh, they got that wrong in Europe and uh, and we've seen mass protests really, you know, forcing the EU's hand in this and, and Hamza Youssef has clearly identified that as an issue he needs to nip in the bud before things uh, turn the same way in Scotland. Yeah, well, it's great that the, the First Minister is looking at, you know, how do I keep the rural sector, the land managers, the farmers on, on side? Because it certainly hasn't felt as though that was a, a kind of driving principle of, of policy and written um, legislation kind of making in the last sort of 12 to, to 18 months um, from him or his, you know, his predecessor. So great that, you know, that we have that. Um, I hope it lasts. I hope it lasts beyond the general election. Um, I hope it lasts um, in terms of, or it's widened to include rural business and rural communities and, and opportunities for uh, for rural housing, because it's it's interesting to see how that you know the budgets are being protected in some areas, but slashed in others. So trying to get behind the thinking of of what government wants to see that vision for rural Scotland, time back to what you were saying, Elna, right now is is not that clear. So. It'll be interesting to see as things like the rural delivery plan come out, that the, you know new new kind of uh, policies, rural land use partnerships, where they all fit in, because right now it's it's a fairly messy um, policy um, climate po- policy framework, and in fact in some pl- cases it's downright contradictory. So I think we've got a another busy time ahead of us. So I mean, thank you for for sharing those updates. I think people will find them really, really useful. Um, Fingers crossed nothing new happens before we can get this out to our podcast listeners. But given that this is uh, Scottish politics, um, I can't guarantee that there won't be another um, update to the update. But fingers crossed um, that that stays stays the way things are for at least the next couple couple of days at least. So thanks very much for that, guys. Really, really useful. Thanks, Esther. Excellent. Thank you as always i hope you've enjoyed listening to scotland matters but if you have any questions please remember that members of scottish land and estates have access to dedicated support information and advice over the phone and via email from our policy team please feel free to get in touch and with that season one of scotland matters comes to a close we'll be taking a short break but the second season of scotland matters will return in the near future Make sure you're subscribed to your streaming platform of choice so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. We'd like to say thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us again soon.